On today's podcast, I'm going to answer some listeners' questions, and I'm going to speak on a topic that I saw someone bring up on uh, Twitter that was uh, giving advice about what what people should do in their vacation uh, Bible school uh, for explaining uh, the Godhead to youth. So we're going to look at that and also uh, respond to some comments that we've gotten from YouTube. Greetings. Thank you for tuning in to listen to Equipping the Bride podcast. I'm Brother Jason DeMars from Beaufort, South Carolina, a minister at Bethel Tabernacle. New episodes of this podcast are posted every Friday. You can watch this podcast on YouTube and listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any questions, testimonies, or prayer requests, please let me know at jasondemars.com. I also have free books and tracks available at my website, and shipping is free as well. May the Lord richly bless you. Hey, how's everybody doing? Just want to ask everyone to remember me in prayer. I'm going to be going on a missions trip May 28th through June 5th. I'll be going to uh, two different countries in the Middle East, and I greatly covet your prayers for that. Um, Also, just want to remind everyone that I do uh, have a a nonprofit uh, missions ministry, Present Truth Ministries is what it's called, you can find me at presenttruthmn.com and take a look at the missions work I've been doing for, man, what has it been? Since uh, 2009, I started and then been full-time since 2012, uh, especially started working with Iranians and have moved to start working with Egyptians now. And so we've been working on the translations of Brother Branham in both the Farsi language and the Arabic language now, and I go and visit those countries. COVID changed things up, but I think I've done 24 trips to Turkey and maybe, I'm going to have to guess, six trips, something like that, to to um, Egypt. So um, just probably more than that, actually, um, when I think about it. So please, please remember me and that work in prayer. If you want to support missions, you can do that on that website, and I greatly appreciate it. So Justin Peters, who is a Reformed uh, minister, writes on his Twitter. He spends a lot of time, Justin Peters spends a lot of time um, battling against charismatics and uh uh, he, he's a person that believes the days of miracles are past, but um, he, he has some good commentary on some things. However, this is what he says. He says, with churches gearing up for vacation Bible school and teachers wanting to illustrate the Trinity to the kids, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Isaiah 40, verse 18. This is not a challenge. God is not like water that can be liquid, solid, or gas. Uh, God is not like an egg or a three-leaf clover. God is not challenging you to come up with something to illustrate his triune nature. 
the whole of course he's a trinitarian the whole point is that there is no one and no thing to which you can compare god he is without equal and nothing can be compared to him please do away with the illustrations of the tr- trinity none of them work that is the point to even try is to bring god low now i just want to comment on this i, I saw this and i thought well i think he's partially right and partially wrong number one he's a trinitarian so by uh, he's he's contradicting himself from the very get-go. He's using uh, non-biblical terminology to describe God. Three persons in one uh, one essence is never how Scripture describes God. This is a post-biblical description of who God is. If you want to look for a biblical description of who he is, the Bible goes into it uh, completely, fully, and yes, that's absolutely truth. Who will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him with? God within himself is spirit. You can compare him to nothing and no one. We find through scripture that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. We find in scripture that in him we live and move and have our being. God is a spirit, and the word there, spirit, is the word pneuma, and it means the wind or air. Now, God is not air, God is not wind, but God is likened unto wind or air. It is a force, a supernatural force acting upon, whereas wind is a natural force, Spirit is a supernatural force. God is without body. God is uh, without form. We find there's no likeness you can compare to him. However, in Scripture, uh, we we have some examples that we want to look at. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God himself made an image of himself. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So we are not to make an image of God. But God makes an image of himself and he made man. And what is man? First Thessalonians 5.23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see the man who is made in the image and likeness of God is made up of body, soul, and spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we see that man has three parts to him, body, soul, and spirit. Man is one person, and he's made up of three different aspects. Body, that's the physical part. Soul, that's the real you. It's the nature of your spirit, and spirit is the mind. That is the control. That is the the where you have thoughts and imagination and reason and affection, and so forth. Th- those are those aspects. That is the aspects of the mind. 
So we're made up of three different parts. God is made up of three different parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three persons, but three different attributes or aspects of his character and being. All right. Colossians 1.15 also gives us illustrations. Now, uh, these are not illustrations of a trinity, but they're illustrations of God being manifested. Colossians 1.15, speaking of, he says, we're translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So here God himself makes an image of himself. He's the invisible God. He is spirit who covers all space and time. And he makes an image of himself. Thayer definition says an image, figure, likeness. One in whom the likeness of any one is seen. So I, I believe this speaks both of the nature. He is the image of God. So his nature is the same as God, and his his characteristics are the same as God, and God meant that Jesus would be the visible manifestation of who God is. Now, we don't know Christ after the flesh anymore. We don't see him visibly anymore, but we read of his life, and we see his life on display in the Gospels, and through that life on display, we are seeing God. The Weist says, who is a this is the Weist translation, expanded translation of Colossians 1.15, says, who is a derived reproduction and manifestation of absolute deity, the invisible deity. So Jesus is the visible expression of, of the invisible deity. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, this verse is usually taken to mean, well, Jesus laid aside his deity and became a man, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Christ is in the form of God. He's existing in the form of God. He is God on Morpha. The word in the form means on Morpha. And the word Morphe means the form by which a person or thing strikes the vision, external appearance. So this is speaking of Jesus, though he was the image of the invisible God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was God. He was God manifest in the flesh. And it says he made himself of no rep reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In his very humanity and humbling of himself, he puts God on display and makes him visible. This is the same picture we see again and again that Paul is speaking of uh, there in the New Testament. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the, the face of Jesus Christ is the word prosopon. It means the face or the front of the human head. It's speaking of the, the appearance one presents. Outward circumstances, it would be like saying this, Jesus is the mask that God put on to make himself visible. So the glory of God is manifested in the mask of Jesus Christ, in the prosopone of Jesus Christ. In other words, the outward appearance. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 says this, Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And the Weist translation says this, In the last days he spoken to us in one who by nature is Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he constituted the ages, who being the outraying of his glory and the exact reproduction of his essence. So here we see God is using several uh, means of expression, So, and he's the exact imprint of God's nature. So when you're speaking of an exact imprint, it's, this is the terminology that's used of a coin. So here we see the apostle using a coin to express what he wants to about God. God is the like if you if you take say in America you you take um you take the the uh the quarter that has an image on it, right? See if I can find I think I have a quarter here somewhere but maybe not. Um, I don't have a quarter. Anyways, Jesus said, uh, show me, show me some money. And they showed him a coin and he said, whose image and superscription is this? They said, Caesar's. All right. So Caesar is the, the origin. He's the original. And so they make a stamp to look like uh, Caesar. So they take that stamp and they do an imprint. Well, the stamp is the original now, and the imprint is on the coin. So Jesus is that is that coin, right? And the stamp is the Father. So when the Father wanted to stamp himself, he brought forth his Son, and his Son is the exact representation of his nature. And he also uses the terminology, the outraying. So there we see uh, a ter- terminology used in regards to the sun. So the sun is like, you know, this not, not the son of God, but like the sun, the star that's in the sky. Uh, the sun is the father, it's the source. Well, the sun is made visible by outraying, like rays of light. So the light coming out from the sun is Jesus Christ. The sun itself is the Father. So we have the outrank. So these are ways; these are illustrations that God uses in the Bible 
to show forth who he is. Now, if we're going to say, don't try to use any uh, illustration of who God is, should we, Justin, should we do away with the scripture? No, we should not do away with the scripture. We should definitely do away with non-biblical illustrations uh, and and even non-biblical doctrines. Uh, it can't be denied that the Trinity was a doctrine developed after, long after the completion of the canon of Scripture. The Trinity doctrine was not passed down by the apostles. The first ones to use this terminology of the Trinity were in the second century. Uh, Theophilus of Antioch was the first Greek writer, and Tertullian was the first Latin writer to use this terminology. And at that point in time, neither of them really believed in three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. That was a later development. Origin of Alexandria was the first theologian to exposit the eternal generation of the Son. And, and that became the norm, and that's what went forward at the Nicene Council. These things are very clear. Uh, but again, I, I agree with it on, in, in, uh, in one sense. We certainly can't make up our own illustrations to describe God. It, it, it does. It perverts the word. But we have to stay with the word and use the illustrations that the Bible itself gives to us. All right. So let's go to um, one statement I saw um, uh, quite a while back. I did a video called, Does Genesis 4-1 Say Adam Was, was Cain's Father? And uh, I just got a comment two, two days ago uh, from Barb Wire, which is probably not their real name, on YouTube. They say, Genesis 4.1 is so crystal clear that a child can read it and understand it. The verse specifically states that Adam had sex with Eve and Cain was conceived. It says that Cain come from the Lord, not Satan. If this clear verse can be twisted to a different meaning, then anything goes and the Bible becomes worthless. Terrible exegesis. Take off your mule blinders. Okay, so I think they missed the point that I was trying to make. Number one is, Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Okay? This is not, this is not God saying that. Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And certainly that's true. All life comes from God. Even hybrid life. Even when uh, a horse and a donkey produce a mule, this life comes from God. Certainly. However, you say Genesis 4.1 is so clear that a child can read it and understand it. You're not answering what I said specifically. You completely misunderstood what was spoken. Genesis 4.1 has two different tenses. Perhaps you don't understand how Hebrew works. Hebrew does not have past, present, and future tense. It has perfect and imperfect tense. This means it has a completed action, and it has an action that's in process. It doesn't have present, past, and future, okay? And it also doesn't have 
commas and periods and exclamation points. When we put when our translators put that in there, they do it based on sequences of the sentence, verbs, nouns, pronouns, etc., etc. But in particular, they they use verb verbs and verb tenses to break up sentences. In the French translation, uh, it it tells us that an Adam knew his wife. Period. New sentence, and she conceived and bare a son, and called him Cain. Okay, and I showed you in Genesis four seventeen and Genesis five verse one that both of them speak of Cain knowing his wife and conceiving and bearing using all the same tense of verbs. And Adam and Eve and producing Seth, all the same tense in the verbs. Okay? But Genesis 4.1 does not have the same tense, uh, verb tense. It says, And Adam had known his wife Eve. It is perfect tense. It means it's a completed action. So then we finish the sentence and put a period there. And then we say, and she was conceiving and she was bearing a son. This is a this puts a mystery in the verse. Why why is that verse Genesis 4:1 so different from Genesis 4:17 and Genesis 5:1 that have in English the exact same terminology. Now if you want to just take it in English and throw away the Hebrew barbed wire, you're more than welcome to do that. But the whole context of Scripture is showing a separation and a difference. Why does, why does God curse the reproductive process of the woman? Why does God tell the serpent that he has offspring and the woman has offspring? And why, do, why does he say there's enmity between the two offspring? And then we fast forward, we know it's a prophecy, and it's Pharisees and Jesus. Who is the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3, 16, 14 and 15? And 16, and, uh, why is Eve's reproductive process cursed? Genesis 4, 1 leaves a mystery there. Yes, I know, I realize that it looks exactly like that Adam had sex with Eve and Cain was conceived, but the verb tenses show there's a separation between those actions. A verb is an action. So there's a sex separation between Adam having sex with Eve and the conception of Cain. This is clear. That is not terrible exegesis. It is very clear. It can be no more clear that there's a separation between the action of Adam having sex with Eve and the conception of Cain. And we see that manifested in the future. He says there's enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent seed. What happens? Cain kills Abel. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what's happening here. And the Bible clearly says in 1 John chapter 3 that Cain was of the wicked one. So you answer me that. Why does Eve say, I've gotten a man from the Lord, and the Apostle John says, Cain was of 
the devil? You answer the question for me. All right. Thank you for that comment. I take them all, criticism and all the like. And uh, if I'm in error, I like to learn, but this person's not answering the question at all. So I have a, a something written in from Brenda Sutton. Uh, she says, Shalom, Brother Jason. As a believer living in Kentucky, I follow the message of the hour and happened upon your podcast, which I enjoy very much. Thank you. And she says, I have a question that I hope you can answer. A Muslim man was trying to prove that there is a contradiction in the Bible. He gave the scripture, 2 Kings 8.26 and 2 Chronicles 22, verse 2, as contradictory. As I read them, I can see how he could claim this, but I know there are no contradictions. If you could read them and shed some light on this, it would be greatly appreciated. All right, 2 Chronicles 22, verse 2. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. Okay, so there's Second Chronicles 22, verse 2, and Second Kings 8, 26. Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, uh, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. I think that's how you pronounce it, Athaliah, or Athaliah, I'm not sure. Athaliah sounds better, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, number one is he could not be 42 years old because his father was 40 years old when he died. Second Chronicles 21, 20, 30 and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and departed without being desired, howbeit there buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the kings. In other words, he was a wicked, evil king and a terrible ruler, and they didn't desire him, so they didn't mourn for him, they buried him in the city of David, but not in in a place of honor. So he was 40 years old when he died. So his son could therefore not be two years older than him when he began to reign. He was certainly 22 years old when he began to reign. So how do we reconcile these differences? I want to look at a few commentaries. Adam Clark writes, see the note on 2 Kings 8.26. Ahaziah might have been 22 years old, according to 2 Kings 8.26, but he could not have been 42, as was stated here, without being two years older than his own father. See the note there. The Syriac and Arabic have 22, and the Septuagint, in some cases, 20. And it is very probable that the Hebrew text read so originally, for when numbers were expressed by single letters, it was easy to mistake Mem, 40, for Kaf, 20. And if this book was written by a scribe who used the ancient Hebrew letters, now called the Samaritan, the mistake was still more easy and probable as the difference between Kaf and Mem is very small and can in many instances be discerned only by an accustomed eye. The reading in 2 Kings 8.26 is right, and any attempt to reconcile this in Chronicles with that is equally futile and absurd. Both readings cannot be true. Is that therefore likely to be genuine that makes the son two years older than the father who beget him? All right. So in John Gill commentary says, It seems to best acknowledge a mistake of the copier, which might easily be made through a similarity of the numeral letters, 42, 22. So it's the difference between 
cough and maim. And the rather some, rather since some copies of the Septuagint and the Syriac and Arabic versions read 22, as in Kings, particularly the Syriac version used in the Church of Antioch from the most early times, a copy of which Bishop Usher uh, obtained at a very great price, and in which the number is 22, as he assures us, and that the difficulty here is owing to the carelessness of the transcribers is owned by Glacius a warm advocate for the integrity of the Hebrew text, and so by Vitringa. And indeed, it is more of the honor of the sacred scriptures to acknowledge here and there a mistake of the copiers, especially in the historical books, where there is sometimes a strange difference of names and numbers than to give into wild and distorted interpretations of them in order to reconcile them, and where there is no danger with respect to any article of faith or manners and as a learned man. So what are they saying? If you look to the most ancient, it's simply a mistake of the copyists. So God has promised to preserve his word. Okay. In our interpretations, the, cop, the, the, tra- the transcripts that the King James writers had showed 42 in one and 22 in the other, and they left it as such. But we've come forward um, 400 and... 10 years since the King James, uh, since the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic text that the King James translators use. We have more information and more discoveries have been made, and we have learned from the most ancient, some of the most ancient manuscripts that have been found that 42 was a mistake of the copiers. And the, re- the fact is that it's 22, and so we don't have a contradiction in Scripture. We have a mistake by copyists. This is only in some of the modern translations. In the oldest translations, they mentioned several of them. We have Syriac version. That's a translation, and that shows 22 years old. And so it's not a contradiction, and it's not. we don't need to come to a fanciful interpretation as time goes on, more more discoveries are made, and we can get more accurate in our uh, English translations. So I hope that helps uh, answer that question, sister. And furthermore, um, the general statement that Muslims make is that the Bible contradicts itself. So the question that I would have to them is, if God cannot keep and preserve as Muslims believe the Torah and the Psalms and the gospel, they have been perverted and twisted, then certainly the Quran has also been perverted and twisted. The, the main issue that we have is this. The Quran has had many different versions over the years, and it was regulated uh, sometime after the fact, into one version. But remember this, that the Quran itself contradicts the teaching of the prophets that went before them. And so if you contradict the, teach, uh, the, the teachings and preachings of the prophets went before you, it means you're a false teacher, and that your, un, your teaching should be dismissed. So the Quran itself is a perversion of the Word of God. All 
all the all of it lines up. They say it's blasphemy to say that Jesus is the Son of God. It is not blasphemy because the Old Testament prophesies that he will be that the Messiah will be the Son of God. From Psalms to Isaiah to the prophecies of David and Solomon. All of these things speak to us that Messiah will be the Son of God. And it's not by God having sex with Mary. It's by the Holy Spirit overshadowing and creating within Mary a virgin-born man. And because he's a virgin-born man, he is the Son of God. It's very simple. The Quran itself is a deviation from the Bible. And that is why people in the Quran seeks to attack the Bible, because they, they have to attack the Bible in order to build up their teaching. But the fact is, their teaching is a perversion, and their reasoning is faulty. If God cannot keep the Bible, then God cannot keep the Quran, and he's not God at all. So their understanding of God is wrong and perverted. I hope that helps, Sister Brenda. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. If you want to support the podcast, I'll, you can do so on the Buzzsprout link that I have below. You can do three, five, eight, or ten a month to help support it. We have enough people supporting it. It can cover the costs of it, and I greatly appreciate that. If you're blessed by it, please uh, comment. Please give us your review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we'd love to see your feedback. We sure appreciate that. May the Lord richly bless you. Thank you for listening to Equipping the Bride podcast. New episodes are posted every Friday. I want to remind you that if you have any questions, testimonies, or prayer requests, please let me know at jasondemars.com. I also have free books and tracks available at my website, and shipping is free as well. Please, I ask you to remember the believers and the mission's work in the Middle East in prayer. May the Lord richly bless you.